0: this morning I have to ask, are you awake? Alright, is your awakening moments this Sunday more, I'm so glad, I'm awake, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm thankful for this Jesus and I'm learning about who He is and ready to serve Him or is my wake like, it's Sunday, I'm here, I made it. How many of you feel like you're ever guilty of that second one? I feel like that often. I'll just be honest. It's like, alright, it's Sunday. I love being here and it does excite me, but you know, it excites me because this is, this is what I love to do. This is what I know I'm called to do. And I know that as a younger person, um, whenever I was in college and before I was ever serving in a capacity in the church, sometimes going in the morning was kind of more like an arduous task. Just merely getting to church was difficult. Um, We were one of those families that drove quite a ways to our church. We lived on one side of our town in Mississippi and we drove the uh, 15-20 miles to the other side of town. And in Mississippi, 15-20 to miles, it's it's kind of a little bit of a haul. Um, Here in Michigan, that's just a small commute. But... There in the mornings, it just seemed like a, such a difficult task and getting up and getting ready. And it was just like there was just this extension of my school week. I had the Saturday that I somewhat was able to do what I wanted to do, but Saturday, I mean Sunday just seemed like a task. And there was no urgency in my life really to be there other than an expectation. You're supposed to be there. It's what you do. You're a member of the Taylor family. Uh, your grandmother plays the piano. Your grandfather is a deacon. You better be in church. And you better not go to sleep. Because if you didn't, Pawpaw would move from the claw on your shoulder to the smack on the back of your head. And if the preacher didn't wake you up, Pawpaw was going to. It was one of those things that was expected. But, if I'm honest... I fell asleep in church a lot. I did. Giving too much attention to other aspects of my life, staying awake ridiculous um, points in time on a Saturday night to where Sunday morning didn't have that preparation to be there. I wasn't preparing myself to be awake. I wasn't excited about being there and being awake. And then something happened. Something happened in my college years, when God really shook me, I, I, I don't know how to fully explain it other than He shook me and woke me up to the fact that how you're living in this laxadaisical kind of laissez-faire, whatever will be, it's okay, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen, you're not really needed, you're not really necessary kind of way is not cool, man. It is just not the way that I have intended for you to live this life that I have given you. That I have recreated in you. And that I didn't just do it like, oh yeah, here you go, bud. Here, just take this. I gave myself fully on the cross for you and you just think it's cool to pretend that it's not a big deal. Wake up! to what I have done for you. That's the kind of shaking I'm talking about. That's the kind of moment. Kind of like getting water poured on your head early in the morning. Kind of like someone coming in and just shaking you in the bed and you realizing jumping up. Kind of like the revelry moment in the army that is waking you up. Not the little slight alarm clock. Not the, hey, you might want to get ready, bud. Just hit the snooze button. Whenever it's your time, you can go. Now, it was urgency. We got to get up and do something. And I, what I found in my life, and maybe you have found this too, maybe you recognize this story, how easy it is to be distracted and to fall into the same kind of law. And to look at the cross and no longer look at it with passion. To look at the cross and no longer have it as your single motivation for everything you do. To look at the cross and to discount the Gospel. To look at the cross and think, you know what? My words are just not effective enough. I might as well not share them. To look at the cross and think, you know, my time's really busy. Now this is not a getting on to the church message. This is just a point of looking at where we are in the Scriptures, we're going to begin a new series today called "Awakened." Not awaken because the preacher gets loud. Not awaken because the music got louder or with a more bit of a beat. Not awaken because the lights are brighter or the sun is out. No, awaken because the cross is worthy of our attention. And if it's not getting our attention, what are we doing? What are we here for? And how are we really viewing Christ? The reason we're going to be doing this journey is we're going to be looking at the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're going to be looking at a church that Paul loved, that Paul the apostle helped to start, but whenever he's writing this letter, where much of the letters are about instruction, they're being helpful, they're talking about doctrine, they're talking about theology, the letters to 1st and 2nd Corinthians while they had beautiful places like the love chapter, where it says love is patient, love is kind, love endures forever. We love that chapter. That's beautiful. Where it has, you know, the the, the, the parts about the body of Christ coming together, that's beautiful. But when you read the books of First and Second Corinthians, what you understand and find is that they are letters and they're not so nice overall. Because Paul loved passionately this church but he saw something happening in this church that shook him to the core, that disturbed him greatly. He saw in this church a great difficulty from a lack of devotion to Christ, from an apathy to the doctrines of Christ, and because of it, they were distracted from their calling. They were distracted from their meaning. And Paul is writing this letter in a way to say, wake up! Not because you're making me look bad, That's not Paul's point at all, but because Jesus deserves more than you can imagine. And because Jesus has done more than you have paid attention to. So, with that being said, would you turn in the Scriptures? We're going to open up the very first chapter of this letter to 1 Corinthians. I would ask you to stand with me in the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first 17 verses. It will be on the screen behind me. I encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, whether it be in electronic or print. I'm reading from the CSV. You follow along whatever version you have. But this is what it says. Paul, called as apostle of Christ, Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds kind of nice. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in Him in every way in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. That there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. Or I belong to Apollos. Or I belong to Cephas. Or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. But Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the Gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Lord Jesus, use Your Word as only You can today. Help me to be Your servant, to be hidden behind the shadow of Your cross, to be moved and empowered by Your Spirit, and to speak a way of applying Your Word. But we may be reminded it's Your words, not mine. May they be heard in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. So here we have this letter. They call them a spiritual word like epistles. Epistles is a kind of a business letter. We'll kind of equate to a memo today. But these are not memos. These are personal letters that Paul wrote to these churches. And many times when he's writing these churches, you, you'll see that these there's these long run-on sentences because Paul was writing these, these letters by dictation. He was just kind of spitting his thoughts out, and these letters came to be. Now, when we understand the Scripture, we say that these are not just words that were spit out by an apostle, but they were also inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us today. So they are inspired by God. God used this human author to do this, by and and through this human author, God gave His words to us. But this letter, Paul is writing to this church, and he's writing around A.D. 56. So this is before the time of Nero. This is before the persecutions that Paul would face and before he was imprisoned the second time, which ultimately led to his martyrdom. And he's writing around AD 56, so he's on his um, second missionary journey, and he's most likely in the city of Ephesus. The Bible says he spent three years teaching in Ephesus. Ephesus was across the sea, the Aegean Sea, from Corinth. Ephesus was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Corinth is on this little strip of land that holds the, that is between the northern part of Greece or Macedonia and the southern part of Greece. It sits on this little isthmus. It's this little piece of land that's about three miles wide that basically keeps Greece from being merely an island. The city of Corinth was right there, a major center of trade, a place where Paul had, had devoted some of his ministry in the second missionary journey earlier when God called him to cross the, the sea and and come and deliver the message into that part of Europe. But he's writing this church because he's hearing reports of all kinds of divisions, all kinds of difficulties. In fact, once again, there's a bunch of pleasant parts in the book of of 1 Corinthians, pleasant little passages, if we kind of leave them by themselves. But overall, you see some really terrible things. Things that we would not even think of and we would be disgusted about here even today. We're not in that passage today. That's a little bit later on. um, And we will talk about them in a copacetic way because it is a family uh, gathering here. But he's hearing all of this and he's seeing in the middle of a complete lack of devotion and a complete apathy to doctrine. And here he writes this letter to say, alright, guys, I just want you to get something straight. Jesus owns you. Now that's a big deal. And I don't want us to kind of miss it or belittle that fact. If you have been saved and you have called on the name of Jesus as your Lord, He owns you. In fact, He's always owned you because He created you in the first place, but then He saw you in your sin when you called out to Him and you recognized His grace and you submitted into yourself into His hand to save you. He rescued you and recreated life in you. He owns you. And because of that, authority and ownership, there are implications of that in our life. We don't no longer awake to ourselves. We no longer awake for our own glory. We no longer awake for our own good. We are in the hands and service of Christ our King, who is a loving Father that has adopted us, but He's also employed us in His work. And Paul is writing this startling letter to the Corinthians to remind them of this. The Bible has been preserved by God today so that when we read it, we're reminded the same applies to us. It was not only just applicable then, but not applicable now. They'll know the entirety of Scripture is God breathed and useful and profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, so that the man of God, in and training and righteousness so for the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. It's still useful today. We need that reminder. And we need to, when we open the scripture to have some observations, what do we see? Now I don't want to be misconstrued here. I don't want us to get in the habit of saying, well, when I read this, this is what it means to me. You could say something means this to you, but you could completely be off the mark and completely be wrong. Given the entirety of Scripture, given our growth and knowledge as what it means to be a disciple, we need to look at what it means. Not just what it means to me or what I feel it means. What does it mean in in the full concept of God's glory? You may say, Pastor, I don't have a... Bible degree or anything like that. Well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But it also doesn't give you an excuse to say that, you know, I can just pull my own interpretation into it. Just like I know plenty people that have those those degrees, and they try to put their own interpretation and spin on it. No, no. The Bible says what it says. We need to observe what it says, what it means how it applies, and whether we're going to obey it. So let's look at some observations we discover from the Scripture. First, we observe that the church has this glorious privilege. I love how Paul structures his letters. He he doesn't just uh, say, Dear Billy Joe, here's my problem. By the way, I like you. Thanks for reading this. Later. That's not how Paul writes his letters when he addresses these problems. Paul writes, says, hey, this is me. This is why I I feel like I need to write to you. And this is the glory that God has given you. I want to say all these things about what's going on in your life and what God has done through you. I want you to know this ahead of time. You may call it softening the blow. But I see it as as the Lord putting this, this picture of the Gospel. That God is not saying, hey, you need to do all this in order to be pleasing. He says, no, I've already made you pleasing in my sight. Now this is what it means to live in the light of that. It's not backwards, really. But Paul goes and says, I want you to observe some things I observe. Some things that God, how He views the church. And that is the church has this glorious privilege that you are now called sanctified in Christ. That the cause of Christ, if you look at verses 1-3, through three, you are sanctified in Christ. You have been consecrated in His, in His work. It seems like a big churchy word, doesn't it? It means that God has set you apart. God has made some distinctiveness about who you are. That because of what He has done and what He alone can do, you are set apart by His sacrifice. Not only are you sanctified, but you are also now called saints in Christ. That you have been set apart, made distinct, but you've also been dedicated as God's people, dedicated to a work that God has. When a person is called holy, it means that that person is different. He is unique from other persons because he specially belongs now to God and to the service of God. Now in the church, when the church comes together as the saints, not just the saint, but the saints, it means that when you look around and you see your brothers in Christ though, and sisters in Christ, those who have chosen to trust Jesus, all of you have been Consecrated, you've been set apart, and now you're being brought together and dedicated to a greater work. There is a glorious privilege that has come about the church because of the cross. The difference is not to be marked in our lives by some withdrawal from ordinary life where we become like monastery monks and we put on robes and we just look different that way. I know sometimes people look Christians and they say they look different. I understand that. I, I homeschool my kids. Um, some people think that's weird It works for us i'm not saying it's for everybody i'm not knocking people that do public school private school whatever you do but i know there's a stereotype for homeschool kids and homeschoolers and if i'm honest i might look like that that um stereotype or i may not because i've been to homeschool conventions and i tell you there's some people that look kind of weird I'll just be honest they do but that's their thing they're not my home they're not my household who am i to judge other than saying they look weird. But here's the thing. That shouldn't be the difference that marks a church. They just look like weird people. That's not the distinctive. If that's the only thing, then we're just a bunch of weirdos. I don't think there's anything wrong with being weird. Normal seems it doesn't work for people very often. People say, I don't want to be weird. Well, okay, how's normal working out for you? But this thing is, is that We are meant to show within this ordinary life the difference and the quality and the character of what Christ has done with us through the cross. We are now called the sanctified. We are now called the saints. And we are those who can now call Jesus our Savior. The One who saved us on that day. We placed our trust in Him. We can call on Him every single day. And we are among that company, that community, whose. Lives are marked by this ability, this privilege to speak to the living God. That's what Paul says. He says that you're among those from every place who call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Both their Lord and ours. That's a good reminder for us, by the way. We're among those from every place. That means our boundaries, while our little assembly, our little congregation may be defined about where we meet on a Sunday morning, but we're connected to those globally around the world who call upon the name of Jesus, both their Lord and ours. We're of that same family. And we get that privilege to call upon His name. Paul adds that Jesus Christ is that Lord. He's Lord of all. What does that mean for us? It means, as uh, William Barclay would say, I read this quote and I just thought it was very potent, it says, no man, no church locally has exclusive possession of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, but He is also the Lord of all. We need to remember that. When we talk about, and look at other churches and we pray for other churches, man, we're, calling on our, we're talking about our brothers and sisters. There's a special privilege, a glorious privilege that's been given to the church. We observe that in the writing of 1 Corinthians. That's something that will wake you up. Wow, God, you did that for me? That's incredible. That's what it means when we're the church. That's huge. Why don't I say that? Secondly, what's one of the things we observe when we wake up and then we open our eyes? We observe a grace-filled reminder for the church. Not only just what the privilege of the church is, but a grace-filled reminder. This is where Paul gives this thing. And you may see in your Bible it's marked off as Thanksgiving. Almost every single letter has this little portion of Scripture where Paul is giving thanks Here's a few things to be reminded of in this grace-filled reminder as Paul reminds the church and is reminding us today. One, we are to be thankful for the gift of God's grace and ever reminded that it's a gift, that you were saved by grace. That is huge, huge news that God decided to gift us, that He chose to display His mercy and compassion in that way. And then, no matter what, even before we are coming to Christ or after we've come to Christ, there is nothing we could ever deserve that could even make that worthy. But He, out of His great love, did that for us. That's something to be thankful for. Second reminder, we are enriched by Christ in every way. Paul says, particularly in how we speak and in our knowledge. In other words, Jesus greatly affects what we should utter because Jesus transforms what we really know. Here's a note for that. Christians, Christians are not to be mouthy about things that they don't know. We're not to just try to spout off and just to sound pious and sound upright. We don't get to mouth off in speculation. God has said, this is the truth of who I am. This is the truth that has transformed your life. It better transform your words. Because I have particularly done something in your speech. I have particularly done something in your knowledge. Live in the light of that. I have enriched it. Third, we are the confirmation of the Gospel's work. It says that there was a demonstration of the Gospel's work in the church in such a way that the spiritual gifts were being used for the glory of God. Paul saw this within the Corinthian church and now they're missing the point. Later on we'll talk about the body and how they were becoming disjointed But what he's saying is, because of his work and the spiritual gifts that is alive in each individual believer coming together as the body, it's a confirmation of the Gospel within that church. Think about it this way. If we're just loosely connected, if uh, we're just mere acquaintances, not really working together, We don't mean to say this, but this is kind of what's being declared. The Gospel isn't enough to unite us. The Gospel doesn't work that much power. The Gospel can't fix this. Wow. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. May it never be said of Eastgate. May it never be said of of our churches. Maybe we'll be awakened by the Christ... and the cross and the Gospel and the demonstration of His power that it, whenever within the church there's this confirmation that wow, this these people come from this place and they come from this place and, and, and they're this skin tone and they're this skin tone and, and that's male and that's female and, and they're older and they're younger and they're richer and they're poor, and I don't see how this works. The Gospel is what brought us together. It's more than enough. And it's confirmed in how this works. Fourth, we are the revealed body of Christ on this earth until He returns. Look at verse 7. He says, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when the Gospel gets a hold of us, when we are woke up by the power of the cross, and you see that evidence, others also see that evidence. And when Paul calls us the body of Christ, it is a metaphor. But it's saying also, you are the visible revelation of Jesus right now until the day He will return. That's one reason God still keeps you here. That there will be a witness of who He is. And there will be a testimony of who He is living within that person. Within that church. That we are also strengthened with power. And not just power like, ooh, look at the power. I want to pump you up. And that's not the type of power we're talking about. He says the power that has been given to us is strength that we could live blamelessly. How many of you have ever been frustrated by your lack of willpower? Your lack of devotion? Your lack of want to? Your lack of gumption, and gusto to battle the issues of the flesh. To battle the temptations of your life. To battle the distractions. How many of you ever get frustrated with that? I'm going to raise my hand. I get stinking frustrated with that. And I will always be frustrated with that as long as I'm trying to live in my own power. As long as I'm trying to live in the strength of Jerome Taylor, in the skill of Jerome Taylor, in the mindset of Jerome Taylor, in the... the Bubble of Jerome Taylor. I will always be frustrated because I will always keep doing what I'm going to do. But God is able to work something miraculous in me with strength to help overcome. And He can do the same in you. We are strengthened with power in order to live blamelessly until He returns. And lastly, we are able to have fellowship with Him because of His faithfulness. Because of who He is, there is a promise which came true that God who began this great work, who made this great promise, He fulfilled it in Jesus. That there is a gift that has been received. It's not something that we could ever earn, but something that He gave. And there is also an ultimate end which will be met. One day, Jesus will bring that return. And we need to be awakened by that news. Because only that news will change a church. Only that news will transform a disciple. Only that news will save a life. Everything else, it's just our own attempts at religion. It's our own attempts at doing good. It's our own attempts of trying to fulfill ourselves. But only what Christ does awakens us. And sometimes, as a church, sometimes in my own life, I've suffered from spiritual amnesia. You know what I mean by that? It just slips our mind, we just forget. We start making other things a little more important than they they really are. We make mountains out of molehills as we old Mississippi folk like to call it. And the Gospel is what brings that cure for spiritual amnesia. It awakens us to the clarion call of Christ and shows us the culmination of His work on the cross. Another thing we observe, though, is the grateful response that the church is meant to have? The grateful response of the church we have we, that is needed to have. We must be united through the work of the cross and for the work of the cross. Paul gives us this instruction when he's talking about being united together, and he's he's giving this instruction because of two major things. First is that Paul is observing reports of foolish, foolish distractions. Foolish distractions. He noticed that there was rivalry going on within the church. And the way he's describing this, the Greek word is like renting garments, tearing cloth. It's that divisive. Now, it's worth noting here that Paul is writing this information from 653 miles away. This is not the church just around the corner that you know what's going on because of somebody's business because you have a kinfolk there. This had gone across the sea, this message. I think that's important. I think that's rather necessary for us to think about. Because if news like that had made it across the sea to Paul, who was 653 miles away, and he was hearing about it and brokenhearted about it. Now, he did help found the church, so I can understand his concern. But he was hearing about it. What other ears do you think were catching wind of what was going on within the church, and whether we like it or not, what goes on in here is heard about out there. It will make a ripple out there for good or bad. Paul is saying that there was a rivalry going on. It was related to the distracting concerns of who about who was most important and who wielded the most influence. And this is not because the leaders that are mentioned here are asking for it. Paul never asked for that. Peter never asked for that. Apollos never asked for that. But there were certain parties, the party of Paul. These were probably Gentiles of the Gospel, but they were using their Christian freedom and liberty to just take the good news and, hey, I can do whatever I want. Jesus saved me. Jesus forgives me. It's not going to be that big of a deal. I can look at the cross, not be woke up by it. Hey, it saved me, but it's not enough for me to live for. I'm going to do my own thing. There was the party of Apollos that would try to over-spiritualize everything into uh, metaphors. and Well, it's just a metaphor for this. It's just a philosophy for this. Because Apollos, he came from Alexandria. This is the most likely case that they were turning their faith into a philosophy rather than the very fabric of their life. The party of Kepha, or Peter, that's the, the Greek name there, these were the Messianic Jewish believers that Paul would sometimes write about that considered their faith in, in the view of a legalistic way. That you had to abide by all these laws for to be accepted by Christ. They belittled grace. And then the party of Christ, this is most likely those that have considered themselves the only true Christians in Corinth. Well, if they were like us. We're the ones that really followed Jesus. They're like that joke about heaven where someone's going around and they're seeing which corners of heaven make the most noise and they see this quiet distance patch out on the outskirts and someone asks, well, who are they? And they says, well, they think they're the only ones here. You may have known people like this before. But here's the thing. There was rivalry in the church. And it was a foolish distraction. Because rivalry, what it says is, look at me. Make much of me. Do it all for me. Instead of saying, Wow. I don't know where we're at, and I don't know where we're at, but I know what Jesus was at for us. And that's where I'm aiming. It's also important to know that there was revelry going on with the trust in the church. Once again, there was a lack of devotion, and it was leading to all kinds of difficulties and distraction. But Paul writes the very end here. He says, I want you to know the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to observe the role of a cross awakened in your life. The implications of Christ ownership because what Jesus did to pay for that ownership. And I don't want to empty the cross of its effect. And if I'm living my life without recognizing the glorious privilege of the church, a grace-filled reminder alive in the church, and I'm not living my life as a grateful response through the church, I'm going to make much of me and not much of Jesus. You see, Paul says, when it comes down to it, it's not a matter of who wills the most importance, who has the most influence. It's a matter of the wisdom that comes from hearing the cross declared. And it doesn't have to be flowery. It doesn't have to be super clever. He says, I did not preach... Uh, he said, not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And Paul's not making a little of baptism. He's saying, but you guys are getting way hung up on that and, not, and missing the point of the gospel. But not with eloquent words, because the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. You see, if we were trying to decorate the story of the cross, to flower it up with rhetoric or cleverness, what we're going to be doing is making more of men and making more of language than of the facts. We would make more of the speaker than of the message. The aim set before men is not for ourselves. It's not about us. It is about us serving Him in all of His mighty grandeur. Not because He says, you got to do this. But because He demonstrates so that we can observe, this is what I did. I am the God Almighty who created all this, holy and good. And I see the offensiveness of your sin. And I provide the sufficiency of the Savior, the only one. The only one who could be the payment for your penalty. And what I've laid before you is an act of incredible grace. But one of personal responsibility. A a decision that has eternal ramifications. And one that will transform your life. And it will continue to transform it. The question is: Is it? Are we really awakened to what Jesus has done? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this opportunity to um, respond to you. I thank you for this opportunity to open your Word together, and I pray that it has been one that we have received with joy, one that will mark our lives not with guilt, but just an invitation of your grace. Today, as we get the opportunity to just respond to you, I pray that we would do that. We would see your great love for us. We would see the great price you willingly paid for us. And we will see the great, wide-open door that you've invited us to live with you and for you and through you. Help us be bold enough to respond in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.